welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 86. My God, 86 episodes. We're, we're closing in on triple digits, at which point absolutely nothing will change, and you will get nothing for having stuck with me for that long, but the satisfaction of having learned about the world and other such grandiose ideas. Uh, let's see, what do I want to say? Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for spreading the word about the show, helping me to build uh, Counterpunch Radio, bringing not only the content of this show, but also the print magazine and the website to the attention of more people. I think that uh, given given the nature and reality of, our, of the political times that we're living in, I think that Counterpunch is just essential. I, I, I don't know of another place that I could count on and truly rely on every morning to know that I can go to that website and get all the information and analysis that I'm looking for, uh, you know, because I'm sick like that and I want it early in the morning and Counterpunch is there for me, uh, like a good friend. Uh, so speaking of good friends, we have a good friend with us today to talk a little bit about a number of issues of importance to Counterpunch. But before we can do that, just want to quickly implore you once again, consider Consider that print subscription. It's a great magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. Uh, I really appreciate every time I get an email from somebody saying, you know, you badgered me enough to where I got that subscription, and I'm really glad that I did. So thank you to those people who have sent those emails and to the people who keep spreading this show around. Also, if you want more of my work, please visit my uh, page on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. A lot more podcast, a lot more content over there, so please do consider going there. All right, let me turn to my guest today. Very happy to have him back on the show. The one, the only, the managing editor of Counterpunch, Joshua Frank. Josh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot to talk about, but we do have breaking news. If I had theme music for breaking news, I'd be playing it right now. So you'll all have to imagine theme music. Josh, What's the breaking news at the Hanford nuclear plant? What's happening there right now as we speak, as we record here on May 9th in the evening? Tell us what's going on there and how we got to this point. Uh, well, today we found out that an underground tunnel that uh, holds radioactive waste, or radioactive contaminated waste rather, um, that there's a 20 by 20 foot hole um, and it's uh, leaking this whatever substance into the soil and obviously into the atmosphere we we believe um the there were thousands of workers at hanford that were forced to go find safety um as of right now it doesn't look like there's been anybody that was hurt from the event itself of course contamination and those kind of things can take uh, you know time to to get an assessment on um but you know this even though this is this is actually I would say the the biggest disaster at Hanford that we've seen in quite a while. Um, it's something that is par for the course and something we're sure to see more of in the future. Uh, for those that don't know about Hanford, Hanford is in Eastern Washington state. It spans uh, like 500 and I think nearly 600 square miles. And it is home of the, a nuclear reservation that once produced plutonium for the atom bomb, for the fat man bomb. So it was the production site for plutonium. And currently, uh, in the, since I think it didn't, it hasn't operated since the late 80s. Um, but there are 
tons of radioactive wastewater. I think there's something that produced um, 475 billion gallons of wastewater were released into the ground. Uh, and right now, I think there's something like 55 million uh, gallons of wastewater that they're trying to deal with. Um, and it's become by far the, the biggest and most expensive environmental boondoggle that we've ever seen in the, in, in the world. And by many estimates, Hanford is the most toxic site in North America. A lot of people don't know about it, and there's billions and billions of dollars. Uh, right now, I think the estimate for uh, the Hanford cleanup process is exceeding $140 billion. That's, that's more than the International Space Station. That's how expensive this thing is. And the same, the same usual suspects that are Department of Energy contractors who oversee this project uh, are profiting, and, and Bechtel is one of the big ones. Um, they're in charge of uh, manufacturing this plant called the WTP plant, the waste treatment plant that's supposed to turn all this radioactive gunk into glass rods so that they can be stored safely. And they are nearly a decade and a half behind, um, and their cost estimates are, you know, like quadruple what they originally were. And of course, who's footing the bill? Taxpayers. So it's, it's, a, it's a mess on all fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I just want to get a sense um, of the role that the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Agency has played in all of this, because uh, I know, because uh, I, you know, because it's in my backyard, essentially, I know about uh, Indian Point here in New York in the Hudson Valley mm -hmm. and the really kind of nefarious role that the federal regulate, the federal regulatory agency for the nuclear plants that they have played. So I'm wondering what role has the Nuclear Regulatory Agency played at Hanford and uh, is it what I would assume? that they are essentially the uh, proxies and in the pockets of these major corporations? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, would, I would say that uh, at least most of the government folks that I've interviewed, and I've written about Hanford now for going on eight years, um, most of them are good folks, and, they are, and they're trying to do a really good job. Um, however, I believe that they're completely understaffed, and many of them have said as much to me. They don't have the right kind of oversight to manage this type of cleanup. Um, I think there's maybe like on average one scientist for the Department of Energy in this case to like 150 workers for Bechtel. So what really is going on there is not so much that the oversight is corrupt. It's that there isn't any oversight. And so Hanford workers are being put at risk because of mismanagement. Um, and there's something that is really nefarious, I think, that uh, is driving a lot of this, um, uh, the chaos, if you want to call it that, uh, that the Bechtel, like most Department of Energy contracts, they have milestone incentives built in to their contracts. So if they, they accomplish a task, they get rewarded for it. And so it's built on speed of the task and not how well the task has been performed. So oftentimes they're getting rewarded for things they have to go back and fix. So this cost, you know, this incentive program that's set up um, actually rewards bad behavior. And that's been the case there for quite a while. Um, and of course, it's the cash cow for Bechtel and, uh, at to, you know, at the expense of the environment and in this case, workers as well um, in the past two years, there's been a number of uh, other sort of vapor accidents where workers are inside facilities 
um, working on them, and there's been release of toxic vapors, and a lot of workers have come down sick. There's been a number of lawsuits filed. Um, and then over the years, of course, there's been a number of whistleblowers that have come out and uh, spoke about you know, what they've experienced, um, and they have not been protected, and um, several of them have actually been fired. Uh, one of them, Walter Tamasitis, who I've gotten to know uh, quite well, he uh, ended up winning a, a, a lawsuit against the Department of Energy and against his former employer, URS, which was a subcontractor of Bechtel. So there is a little justice in there, but they don't make it easy. And, and it's a, uh, you know, it's kind of a closed door situation that a lot of people don't really know about. And it's unfortunate because it is a, a huge, huge deal. The Hanford nuclear plant and all of the radiation, radioactive materials there are just a few, you know, clicks away from the Columbia River, which uh, provides water for tens of thousands of farmers in the Pacific Northwest and of course commercial fisheries and it's, you know, Portland and other, you know, our cities are downstream from the Columbia. So it's a, it's a really big deal. Um, and it could have, you know, lasting effects of course for, for years to come. Absolutely. I mean, you know, speaking of uh, Indian Point and the Hudson River, I mean, it's been a multi-decade project just to clean up the river to some semblance of, uh, you know, restoring the ecosystem. And that's without having gotten rid of Indian Point. So, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, cleanup as far as major rivers like that, I mean, that is a huge undertaking that often there isn't uh, necessarily the political will for. And that's my next question. I want to under I want to understand the role or potential conflict between the feds, uh, the companies running the plant, and uh, Washington State, because in New York we had a major showdown between uh, Andrew Cuomo and the company in charge of Indian Point, and that ultimately was resolved. I'm wondering, is there a conflict between state officials and federal officials and those running the plant, or is it more that they're on the same page? How does that work? Well, in the case of Washington, uh, Washington State has actually been standing up for workers in the state, and uh, they were part of a lawsuit last year that was put into place in order to try to protect some of these workers and provide um, more, you know, to increase the safety culture at Hanford so workers would be provided with better, you know, safety protocol, uh, better gear. Um, and those kind of things. So uh, there's a lot of evidence that Washington state is at odds with, with the feds in this regard and, and is going after them because this is in their own backyard. Now, speaking of the feds, though, um, and this is, I guess, somewhat conjecture, but I want to get your analysis. I mean, what do we expect for Hanford, given the Trump administration, I mean, whatever political will existed before Trump has surely evaporated that his political will to really take on any of these corporations. So I'm wondering, uh, as somebody who follows this closely, what are people around the issue saying about the Trump administration and what that means for the future of the cleanup? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that is at odds. Um, and uh, from the people that I talk to, they're not overly concerned that funding is going to be taken away because, you know, this is at, at the end of the day, this is exactly what Trump, even though rhetorically would say he doesn't support, he totally supports, which is inflated, you know, Department of Energy budgets and, and uh, corporate welfare, the, yeah. the corporate welfare for yeah. sure. And, you know, but this is something that that goes back 
even well before Obama. And, and you know, uh, any any politician has to when they enter office has to deal with these kind of issues. And Obama uh, in 2007, he admitted he didn't even really know much about Hanford. And here Hanford is by far the largest DOE project, cleanup project in the country. So, you know, they go in and they they realize that this is a it's a big deal. It, it needs to be cleaned up. Trump says he wants to have it cleaned up. So I don't see any, you know, funding taken away per se, but the funding at Hanford isn't necessarily the issue. The issue is the fact that they perhaps, I would argue, don't have the right personnel overseeing some of these major projects and uh, to the detriment of workers in the environment. I mean, right now, this plant that Bechtel is in charge of putting together uh, isn't supposed to be up and running until like 2047. So in that interim time, you're looking at this 50 some million gallons of, of radioactive goop just sitting there and continuing to erode these tanks and to leak into the ground. Um, so it's, it's a problem that's not going to go away no matter how fast they build this thing. You know, it's, it's a, and, and when they do build it, they have to build it right because if they don't, we're back to the drawing board. And of course there's more money down the, down the tank. Now, what I have some sense of what uh, of what um, Eastern Washington is like. I mean, my my perception of it is that it's relatively sparsely populated, not at all like the West Coast of Washington. I'm wondering, and and politically, I know that it's much more right wing than than the coastal areas of Washington. I'm wondering. What's the community uh, in the general area around the plant like? What are the impacts that they've been feeling? And have there been uh, detailed investigations into some of the health and environmental impacts? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, Richland, which is the, the town that's adjacent to the reservation that is home to most of the full-time you know, contractors and workers out there from the Department of Energy and then, of course, Bechtel and their subcontractors, um, so the, the culture of Richland has sort of embraced this, uh, the Hanford plant. Um, the, the school mascot is the Bombers. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> they, the, the little, uh, I think the brewery there is called the Atomic Brewery and they, oh. they have, you know, different beers that are, uh, it's Atomic Ale Brew Pub or something like that. Uh, Jeff and I have spent a couple nights there. Uh, I think they, I think Jeff's favorite beer was the Plutonium Porter. So, you know, it's. They've embraced this. Um, however, uh, there is a there is a horrible legacy in Richland. Um, in the late 40s, there was something called the Green Run, where raw uranium was being processed, and a and a big storm hit the region and caused radioactive deposits to fall down all over Richland and then the rural farming communities there. And it for years there was no uh, information about what really happened, and it wasn't until the 80s that um, the government finally released some of these classified documents and showed how bad the contamination actually was. And later there was a class action lawsuit about all these people that had claimed they, they got cancer um, from this contamination from this one event and they were able to settle for it. I think it was a very measles, measly settlement of something like $5,000 per victim. But the government knows a lot more about the effects of, of radioactive, you know, radioactive, fallout then they're obviously leading on um but thousands and thousands of people in the northwest and in that interior northwest in particular have been affected by hanford over the years 
Yeah, and and uh, one can only imagine the extent to which uh, agriculture from that region has been impacted, groundwater, all kinds of things that don't necessarily immediately jump to mind when you think about nuclear issues. Yeah, and when they're looking at thyroid cancer, there's been yeah. quite a few different studies that have shown a spike in thyroid cancers among certain generations of people that lived in those areas. So it's definitely connected, and um, you know, fortunately. The plant isn't producing plutonium now, but now we're left with the cleanup mess, which is, of course, the uh, that's the the you know the crutch of all nuclear uh, projects. You know, Josh. Before we started talking, um, I just quickly was scrolling through my phone and my news feed, and you know, my news feed is taken up by uh, you know talk about Donald Trump firing FBI Director Comey. It's about Russia and Putin and uh, you know Syria and many other issues, and literally nowhere to be found was any news about what's going on in Hanford. And literally today is major, major news. So my question is why is it that we see such a media blackout about nuclear issues and nuclear cleanup issues i mean obviously i think the biggest uh, the the elephant in the room is fukushima which really for 6 years has been under essentially a media blockade can you speak a little bit to the what i would call at least the suppression of these stories in the mainstream media and why you think that is well, in, in the case of Hanford, I I would argue that it's a result of the fact that this facility is sort of in the middle of the nowhere um, on, in the big, greater scheme of things. Obviously, it's a beautiful high desert country. I love it. Uh, Jeff and I have floated the, the, the river right through the reservation, which was quite a trip. And Jeff's written about that. Um, but, you know, the, the Manhattan Project, which Hanford was a part of, was this the Hanford site was picked for that reason because it wasn't uh, easily accessible, that it's hard to find. And and I would say in the case of, of uh, Hanford and what's going on there now, it's very complicated. And I think there's a, there's not a lot of media presence out there. There's been a few good pieces. You know, the L.A. Times covers it. But it's not a national it's not a national issue, even though it should be, of course. It's more of a regional issue. So I, I believe that the people in that area know a heck of a lot more about it than than the rest of the country. Um, and that's uh, unfortunate because it's a national issue and it's an issue that we all need to be talking about. You know, it's uh, not just because of this, you know, it's that this leftover waste, but. Uh, in the case of Fukushima, in the case of, you know, increasing support for nuclear energy. Um, and then, of course, uh, Trump's push for increased nuclear product, nuclear weapon production. Um, these are conversations we need to have and we need to know exactly the ramifications of what uh, what they've caused in the past. Because if we don't understand the history, we're not going to prevent it from happening again. Right. And, you know, and Fukushima is a perfect example of a media blackout, like you said, we we don't really know uh, what's going on. Um, there's been a few scientists that are brave enough to stick out their necks and talk about it. Um, and of course, now that it's washing up on our shores, uh, there's been a little bit more scrutiny. Um, but overall, we just we don't have the sound scientific information, and people um, are generally, you know, ignorant to the fact that nuclear energy and nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And the, the the contamination that comes along with that, the problems of storage, the problems of production aren't really well known because it's a pretty complicated process. 
Yeah, that's that. That's absolutely right. And you know, on this program a number of months ago, I had Carl Grossman. I've had John LaForge on here talking about these issues. You know, two regulars at Counterpunch. And one of the common themes that keeps running through every conversation I have about nuclear issues is just how much disinformation there is about nuclear power. I mean, you literally still have people championing nuclear power as an option for mitigating the impacts of climate change. I mean, this is this is how far back we are in the conversation about nuclear power. And sometimes I feel like and I mean, I don't know your opinion on this, Josh, but sometimes I feel like we're we're further back than we were in the 80s. I mean, in many, many regards, I think that we are. Um, there have been increases in you know renewable energy production, of course. Um, but generally speaking, people don't really know where their energy comes from. People don't really care that much about climate change. They're not really doing a lot uh, on a government level to change the habits. And, you know, there's, there's factors going on and things at play that are, you know, impacting the climate that, uh, for instance, you know, China is starting to cut back on their coal plant, per, you know, production. Um, coal is down in the U.S. big time. And no matter what Trump says he's going to do, he's not going to bring and revive that industry. So there are things, there's positive things happening, but I would argue that it's not necessarily uh, individuals that are, are making that possible or even regulations. It's, it's uh, the economics of it all. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, Aside from the economics and aside from, you know, all of the environmental issues, you know, it just it it just blows my mind that we still have people who are willing to overlook the fact that any day any one of these plants could cause a catastrophe of the most epic proportions. I mean, what we see in Fukushima, uh, that should give us all pause when we consider how close Indian Point is to New York City, how close some of these other plants, uh, I know San Onofre to uh, San Diego and to Orange right. County, uh, a, a number of these other plants that are in populated areas. I just don't think that people understand the danger. No, totally true. And uh, you know, San Onofre, which is just south of where I live and where I surf down there. And uh, it's not running. It's not operating at the moment. But they're dealing with this huge problem of what are they going to do with all this this waste? It's just sitting there. And, of course, as you know, California, you grew up, you know, California, the southern portion is in an earthquake zone. And there is just no saying that, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to cause a very dangerous leak to, to occur. Um, and of course, that's been the conversation for quite a while about why San Onofre needs to be shut down. Um, but now that it's shut down and not producing electricity, we have this other big problem, and that's what the heck to do with all this waste. Yeah, and I mean, again, Fukushima is an instructive uh, case here because if you look there, you have some of the some of the best technicians in all of Japan, and they have been unable to even uh, you know wall off and prevent the waste from dumping into the Pacific Ocean. I mean, they're they're literally not even able to contain the disaster, let alone reverse its impacts. Yeah, that's right, and and that's one of the big problems that they're talking about at Hanford, um, which is in order to build this, this, they call it the vitrification plant at the waste treatment plant. It's the same thing that the turning this, this gunk into to glass. Uh, one of the things that has been coming up and uh, that I've uh, investigated and written about um, is that these, they have to have these mixing tanks that 
continually turn this gunk so that the the stuff can be turned into glass. Well, if there's any malfunction and anything that goes wrong inside of these containers while they're mixing, it, and if it if it stops, if there's a leak, anything happens, no workers can get in there to stop it. So it has to be working 100% correctly for the life of the machine. Otherwise, we're going to to see a similar thing to Fukushima, and and there's most definitely a chance that this leaks at Hanford could get worse and before they get better. And I think that's something that everybody needs to be alarmed about. And what would that look like? I mean, what would it look like if it got worse? Uh, it depends. You know, if it gets into the water system, you could see the entire Columbia River um, from that point down to the ocean being completely contaminated. You could see that soil being completely contaminated. You could see, you know, uh, thousands of square miles of farmland being completely destroyed. Um, it's entire communities would have to be evacuated that are along the Columbia River, perhaps, you know, it, it, I, in the worst case scenario. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a very, very dangerous, um, dangerous thing that they're, they're dealing with. And that's why it needs to be done correctly. And, and that's why it needs to be done not only as quickly as possible, but correctly instead of just on, on the fast track, because if it's not done right, it could get worse. Absolutely. Um, now, last question before we go to break. I'm just, um, what do you think that, what, what do you think that people who want to be active on this issue, whether over Hanford or whether over their local, uh, you know, nuclear plant, uh, what do you, what would you suggest people do to get, uh, involved to be active on this issue? Because, you know, the, the nuclear question, there was a time when it was one of the really kind of burning questions for activists, one of the most vibrant, uh, segments of the activist community. And I don't think it is that anymore. So I'm just wondering, what would you what would you recommend for people who do want to get involved? Well, I think, you know, learning. Fortunately, right now, we're not seeing a lot of nuclear plants that are on the drawing boards being you know built. And over the years, of course, many have been uh, shut down and others have been stopped before they even started to you know break ground. And so I think learning from from those is very important and learning from the the uh the successful environmental campaigns that have shut down places like San Onofre um and it, it does come to awareness and it comes from and it and it's across political lines nobody wants to you know live in the shadow of a nuclear plant that potentially could destroy them right it doesn't matter doesn't matter uh what side of the political spectrum you're on you, you would think you, so you would hope so right and i think building that awareness is first it's key um, but even before that happens, I think people need to learn about where their energy comes from. Is it coming from a coal production plant? Is it coming from natural gas, which is the result of, of fracking? Um, if Do they have alternatives in their communities to perhaps put solar up uh, on their roofs? Um, there's a number of things that people can do to get out from under. I mean, the, the big issue with, elect, uh, with power in general whether it's produced by coal or, or nuclear or, or a dam or whatever. It's the fact that we need to work to decentralize the grid so that people control their own power locally. Um, and of course, nobody wants, no, none of the big electrical companies want that. And that's why they're threatened by rooftop solar and the rest of it. Um, so a lot of people can do that very small uh, by trying to convert their own energy into renewable energy, such as solar. 
that is the biggest threat to these big companies. And and when that happens, you have a, be- a better impetus to uh, argue that these nuclear plants should be closed. Absolutely. And I think one other thing, and I almost can't even believe that I, of all people, am about to say this, but I am. Mm-hmm. Uh this is one area where I do think that uh, involvement and, and activism in local politics can really matter and can make a difference. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, at the national level, when you're forced to, you know, put that put that uh, electoral gun in your mouth every four years, eh, not so much you can really do about that. But at a local level, when you have an issue like this, or whether it was Indian Point in the Hudson Valley or any number of these other plants, I mean, we have seen activism at the local level on the political side of this, and we have seen some movement as far as that goes. So, you know, am I saying join the Democratic Party? Of course not. But I am saying that it would pay to be involved in some of the local politics where some of these fights do play out. Oh, absolutely. And not just that. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of building grassroots movements from the ground up. And as Alexander Coburn used to always say, that, you know, the elections that matter most are the local elections. Those are usually the ones that affect you directly, immediately, yeah. right? Whether it's your school board, whether it's, you know, your, your, uh, you know, your county sheriff, right? Uh, and I think those, that's, it's really important to be involved uh, locally. For, for sure. Absolutely. All right. So let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back from break, I want to talk a little bit about Syria. I want to talk about competing ideas about the politics in Europe and a whole lot more with Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. Stick with us. We'll be right back. at your front door How you gonna come With your hands on your head Or on the trigger of your gun When the law break in How you gonna go Shot down on the pavement Or waiting on death You can crush us, you can bruise us But you have to answer to
Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. Uh, obviously, you can find Josh's work at, at, at Counterpunch, and uh, I just want to commend him uh, while I have him on the line for all of the hard work that uh, that, that he puts in every day. I mean, guys, I, I don't know how much you realize it, but you know, there's a lot of work that goes into putting up that much original content every single day, as Counterpunch does. And while I keep bemoaning the fact that people need to support Counterpunch financially, it's not just to keep Counterpunch going. It's so that we understand how much hard work has gone into it. So, Josh, thanks so much for all the work you, Jeff, Becky, and the whole team do. Oh, thanks, Eric. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a community effort. And and I want to say thanks to everybody that does support Counterpunch, um, not just supporting our work, but to support the efforts that, uh, you know, the entire community puts forth a lot of our writers as well. I mean, we, we try to pay those that we can and our, our magazine does sustain um, itself and, and we, it's able to allow us to publish books and do other things as well, like the podcast. So all of that is, is part of the counterpunch family and we're, we're stoked to have you on board as well. Stoked in return, my friend. Stoked in All return. Right. Uh, I stoked harder than you could imagine. <laughs> um, but uh, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about Syria. Speaking of things that are controversial and counterpunch, uh, let's talk about Syria because you know one of the things that. I want to, I, I want to kind of nail down with you. I mean, there's so much debate. This has been debated ad nauseum. What's the proper position on Syria? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's a piece of shit? Who's a great person? You know, let's leave all that aside. I want to focus on the situation right now. Here we are six years into this war, uh, you know, into what is essentially simultaneously a civil war, an uprising, a proxy war, an international geopolitical conflict, all of these things happening at the same time my question to you is this given all of that how do you think people on the left should be examining syria and what's happening in syria right now in 2017 well right now i mean just news today came out that trump wants to uh, arm and back uh syrian kurds um, that's against turkey's wishes um We've obviously seen that Trump is willing to fire missiles into Syria, um, and there's just there's no signs that that sort of egregious policy is going to change. Um, I was definitely critical, uh, as you know, of of Obama administration's policies towards Syria and training and arming rebels. Um, I oppose that, uh, as I think most people did on the left. And uh, what we're seeing now is a continuation of that policy, which of course hasn't worked. Um, and I think, though, however, however bad Obama was in many regards, uh, I, it's safe to say that the, he didn't let the generals push him around. And, uh, of course, many of the same people advising Trump uh, were advising uh, Obama and wanted Obama to do exactly what Trump is planning or has done already, which is to step up his, his, uh, his violence. Um, so with that said, now we have Trump who we don't know which way 
<laughs> ideologically Trump really leans when it comes to Syria, but we do know that he has changed his tune on it. We know that he is willing to fire missiles. So from a left perspective right now, the Trump administration needs to be challenged. It needs to be, um, you know, forced to curtail its, its it, you know, forays into not only, of course, Syria, but into Afghanistan, which they want to increase the war there, um, and, and Iraq as well. Um, this is all part of this greater, you know, quote unquote, war on terror. And of course, it's not working. Uh, we are in a much worse place than we were following 9-11. Um, and I oppose the war on terror, uh, no matter what country is, is fighting it. Um, so um, that's the position I've held from day one. And I, I would hope that more and more people would continue or help you know, hold up that banner of the anti-war movement, because right now there isn't really much of an anti-war movement. And if, if Trump can be the one to rally it together, all the better. Absolutely. Now, I want to I want to ask you to elaborate a little bit on what you mean, because uh, I think it's important to discuss. So when you're saying any country prosecuting a war on terror, I presume you mean Russia, Russia using essentially the same logic as the Bush administration in terms of the way that they construct uh, the impetus for their uh, intervention in Syria and really their sort of activity throughout the region. So uh, do you see Russia's involvement in Syria? and in the Middle East broadly as essentially reflective of an acceptance of the Bush administration and Obama administration's consensus about a so-called war on terror. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't think, I think it's very safe to say that Russia's involvement in Syria is under the pretext of, you know, this humanitarian effort um, to uphold the Assad regime against Western imperialism and they're using it under the guise of fighting terror um, but let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the reason that Russia is involved in Syria is to, for its own self-benefit. Uh, Assad, I believe, and they've said as much as ex- expendable. I think that uh, Putin is much more interested in striking a deal with Trump than he is with Assad, um, if it benefits Russia. So uh, I think that's what we're seeing play out right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Trump and and Putin at some point, if Trump's still in the White House in the next few years, uh, forming alliance in some regards in their so-called fight against the, the war on terror. Um, and if that does happen, you know, I think a lot of people on the left will be scratching their heads because they've come to believe that Putin is the one out there actually fending off U.S. imperialism. And I would argue that's not been the case. Putin uh, wants a seat at the imperial table. He doesn't want to be seated at the children's table, if you know what I mean. Right, right. And and I think that that's uh, been pretty, <laughs> pretty apparent uh, over the past few years. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, all of the pretexts that were used for, for for Russian involvement in Syria, I think, have evaporated to a large extent. And I think that those people who lionize uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad, whether you agree or disagree, uh, would do well to take note of the fact that Russia is increasingly distancing itself from direct relationship with with Assad, certainly uh, distancing itself from the uh, vociferous support 
and and in terms of rhetoric that they were providing in 2015. So I think that just from looking at the public statements and then increasingly looking at what's come out of the so-called peace talks in Astana, I think it's pretty clear that the Russians are much more interested in whining and dining Washington than they are in maintaining some kind of a uh, alliance built on mutual self-respect with the Assad regime. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I would argue, too, that uh, what we've seen, you know, with Trump um you know there's of course this this uh belief at least among the liberal uh establishment in this country that Russia you know interfered with our election that Russia um wanted Trump um but you know i think at this point it's it's more of a case that Russia is wanting to befriend befriend Trump um, and to align themselves more so with with his administration than they did with the Obama administration. So especially at least with foreign policy um, issues. And I think Trump's actually more open to lifting sanctions on Russia, um, at least uh, over the long term that may happen. Oh, sure. Um, Rexy, Rexy boys got hundreds of billions of dollars riding on it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, it's 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 complicated. It is not black and white, as I think many on the left like to per- pretend it is um, or believe that it is. And and I think it's also important from uh, sort of just an examination standpoint to, to look at the nuance. There's a lot of nuance when it comes to Syria. Um, but the bottom line is, and I've held this since day one, is that I don't support U.S. actions in Syria. I don't support any intervention of any kind in Syria. Uh, I would like to see self-determination among the Syrian people. And, of course, what what we're dealing with now is much different than it was in 2011 during the uh, during the uprisings. We now, of course, we have a total refugee, you know, just conundrum all over Europe and the rest of it. Um so it's it's complicated. I don't think there's any easy answers, but certainly arming, uh, you know, insurgents or rebels or terrorists is not the answer um, from either side of the of the battlefield. You know, one of the things I think, and this is just you know from my own experience and 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 the way that I perceive a lot of this, um, one of the one of the issues I think is an inability. Uh, of people on the left on both sides of the issue uh, of the conflict in Syria to admit maybe mistakes, to admit that they maybe got carried away, to admit that maybe uh, they perceived the issues uh, one way and then their perception changed as circumstances changed. I think that a lot of people, you know, on the left stake out a position and then they feel that they have to defend it with their life and their honor rather than taking stock of the reality on the ground and the reality globally and adjusting their perspectives and understandings accordingly. Yeah, and you know, the thing that confuses me is, and I, and I relate it back to uh, the invasion of Iraq, right? I mean, it was very simple back then to say, of course, I'm anti-war. I know that Saddam isn't the best, you know, dictator ever. I, of course, I, I acknowledge his crimes, many of them carried out hand-in-hand with the U.S., uh, but I could still oppose the war on him and still realize that he wasn't a good dude, right? And I, I don't think that people have uh, carried through with that same sort of belief system with when it comes to Assad. I mean, it's one thing I can I can go down the list of the things that Assad has done that are pretty egregious, um, that I believe that he's a criminal, and I can see why people turned against him. 
Um, but it doesn't mean I support the U.S. overthrowing him and I can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I don't understand why others have to feel they have to defend every action that he does and that everything um, that the U.S. says he's done is wrong um, because it's a lot more complicated than that. And uh, yes, they have used a lot of it as a pretext to go after him. Um, and I, we can we can fight that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that always the pretext is false. Right. And this is a much different situation than you know, uh, weapons inspectors going into Iraq and saying there's no weapons of mass destruction and uh, Colin Powell at the UN saying, look, no, there is. Look at this this printout poster I have, right? That's a much different situation. We don't even have weapons inspectors that are going into uh, Syria to talk about, look for potential chemical weapons. And of course, Russia's blocked that um, and China has in the past. So it's it's a much different playing field. But uh, I would just argue that we can oppose Assad, but still oppose U.S. intervention. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I would agree with that, although I would add one other thing, uh, and that is that uh, we don't necessarily um... – we don't necessarily have to sanction each and everything that, that that a leader of a country may do, but I do think that it is important to keep some kind of a perspective. For instance, there there is a tendency among people who defend Assad to point out all of the ways in which Syria has really opposed Israel, opposed the United States, opposed you know the imperial designs in the region for a number of decades. Some of them absolutely true. At the same time, they make that argument completely ignoring all of the other examples of how the Assad government collaborated with the United States and collaborated with uh, the, the the empire in a number of ways from, you know, torture and extraordinary rendition during the war on terror to many other examples. And I think that what we see is this sort of selective kind of analysis for the purposes of justifying a position retrospectively rather than examining the issues on their broadest scale. Oh, totally. And I would also add to that, you know, with, in in defending Assad's actions or pretending that his actions are just, we are ignoring the greater reality. You know, I've talked to many people that really don't believe that the Assad regime has ever dropped barrel bombs, for instance, even though there's overwhelming evidence from many, many sources verifying that they have. But those what, are the kind of those are the kind of instances where I think the left runs into a, a, a fact finding <laughs> a void that they would rather avoid these truths than to address the reality of what's going on. You know, we're, we're the first to say that when we go out and fight this so-called war on terror, that it actually, as Howard Zinn would say, produce even more terror. Right. More people are recruited to extremist uh, programs. And there's a lot of evidence that that's what's happening in Syria, that that Assad's uh, use of barrel bombs and his indiscriminate killing of civilians by aerial assault. And I would add that uh, the, the Assad regime is the only one that has air power in the region other than what the U.S. is, you know, uh, they're allegedly bombing ISIS. Um, there's been uh, a lot of evidence that there's been civilian casualties caused by Assad and the Russians, and there's no reason to believe that that isn't stoking even more anger against Assad, right? And why is that so hard to believe? I don't understand why that, if the U.S. was doing it in Afghanistan and it's producing, you know, uh, more support for the Taliban, we would say, yeah, of course that is, right? But when it's happening in 
Syria and at the hands of another country, it's somehow not the same equation, even though, of course, it is. I think it's because the politics for a lot of people gets reduced to, like, cheerleading. You know what I mean? It's like I either either have my, you know, Syrian revolution pennant or I have my Assad is great pennant and uh, I will wave it around accordingly and I will hold up my position as best I can. But I think that the reality is that both sides, uh, you know, have, have really kind of Drop the fucking ball, if I'm going to be perfectly honest about it, you know? I mean, I see a lot of people on the left who call themselves socialists and revolutionaries and whatever who absolutely refuse to accept the reality of what the so-called revolution has turned into. You know, oh, there's they, no question. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. They just reject out of hand any analysis that points out the fact that Saudis and Qataris and Emiratis and Chechens and all of these, you know, various death squads and all of the rest of them that they have been funded and fomented, that they've been sent into the country, that they are uh, a large portion of the fighting force on the ground. I mean, we go on and on and on. So while there are, you know, what I've called, you know, Assad fetishists, people who have turned the Syria cause into a cause of their own own sort of political fetish. On the other side, I think that there are the Syrian revolution fetishists who have completely taken it out of its historical and material reality. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, at both ends of the spectrum, whether you're talking about the pro-Assad side of the spectrum or you're talking about the pro-rebel, pro-revolutionary side, there is a lack of understanding and nuance and in doing so, it's very detrimental because, of course, there's been crimes committed on both sides. I would argue that it's been a little bit asymmetrical, however, but to ignore the fact that the revolution doesn't really exist in any tangible form like it once did, um, is, is to ignore that is to ignore reality on the ground and that is a fact I think a lot of people just can't swallow. Well, and I think that it ignores the reality and the, and the you know, the experience of the people who particip- who are participating in the revolution in the first place. I mean, the sure. reality the reality that a lot of people on the, you know, anti-Assad side uh, don't want to accept is the fact that many people who participated in 2011 are fighting on the same side as the government now. You know, yeah, that, that the right, conditions right. have changed to such a degree that the the war has really kind of morphed two or three or four times since 2011. And so why can't, why shouldn't our analysis also morph along with it? Yeah, no, it should reflect what's actually happening and not what we perceive to be happening. You know, I'm really sick and tired of, uh, you know, these sort of armchair analysts that actually never even left their neighborhood to, <laughs> to think they actually know what's going on on the ground. I certainly uh, do my best to try to know what's going on, but I don't know. You know, I mean, it is How very complicated. And most journalists aren't even allowed into most of these areas. And those that are, um, are very brave, but are often seen as, you know, tools of the propaganda machine, either on either side. So, it's, it's really, really difficult. What we do know, however, is what the Trump administration is trying to do and what we do have control over is trying to stop it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, I think that – I don't remember. I think it was Patrick Coburn, although I could be wrong about this. Somebody had written a piece about how Syria is really kind of the uh, – a, a test case or you know a microcosm of everything that's wrong with journalism, of everything that's wrong with the left, of everything that's wrong with activism and, what's every, and everything that's wrong with the anti-war movement or the lack thereof. In many ways, Syria kind of brings into stark relief all of the contradictions and the problems of the left and of journalism. Uh, Yeah, I can't argue with that. You know, one of the things that I 
I have a problem with in regard to Syria is that it also is a big distraction from what the U.S. is doing in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? We, we talked about uh, many battles that have been taking place in Syria, but we don't really talk about what's happening in Mosul, right? Uh, what's happening in Iraq, uh, what the U.S. is doing uh, with allied forces there. Um, it's The reality there is very, very bleak, and um, there Why, is Josh? no anti-war movement to, to that's on the streets day in and day out demanding an end to it, um, because in the end, many people actually support it, um, even on the left. I believe that now that table has turned, that people actually think that fighting the war on terror is a just fight. And that is a, that I think is the, the issue that really needs to be addressed. So, okay. So, but why, I mean, what's changed? That's the thing is like, if I see people trying to justify a war on terror narrative, I have to say, I, I sit and ask myself, but what's changed? I, I don't know what's changed exactly. I'll, I would guess that what changed was the Obama administration. And the Obama administration, of course, continued to carry on this war on terror that was set in place by the neocons and, of course, before that, the Clinton administration. Um, and it is only expanded, of course, under uh, Obama. And in that just like many things under Obama, the environmental movement, uh, I would say the civil rights movements in many cases collapsed. And because we had a pretty cool liberal president in the White House, even though he was continuing to carry on many of the same policies put in place by Bush. Uh, and now we're past Obama and the same policies are in place, but that movement that had been forming and was present under the Bush reign uh, is no longer there. And I think that has a, much to do with the fact that it didn't stay consistent through the Obama years. I think that that's true. I, I think that also um, non-Western media has played a pretty significant role in shaping a lot of the narrative. I think that uh, Russia has done a very remarkably good job of uh, marketing its foreign policy uh, in such a way that it, I think it has penetrated a significant portion of the discourse on the left and uh, not just on the left, rather, I think a significant portion of the discourse in general, particularly among uh, people of the, you know, say millennial generation who don't necessarily get their news from TV uh, or from corporate media in the United States. I think that that has played a significant role. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of a coherent position on the issue has really led people to kind of gravitate to quote-unquote experts who really don't know shit about what's going on. Right, and I think uh, that's called the RT effect, right? Yeah, and I mean, that, and it's, a it's, it's a definite reality, and I think uh, at the base of that, what's causing that is a lack of critical thinking on the part of many on the left to question everything, Right. We're the first to question a report that comes out in the New York Times. Why wouldn't we also be uh, the first to question a report that comes out by Sputnik News or RT? We should. We should be skeptical of everything. So I don't understand why that, you know, that guard has been let down. I think it's because it's it's easier to pretend they have the answers than to actually critically analyze every single bit of information that's being put out. And I just, 
it's very difficult for me to it's very difficult for me to swallow considering everything that's happened in the last couple of years. You know, it would be one thing if like in 2011 for me RT was pretty significant because RT was really the only one giving any critical coverage on the war in Libya. I mean, really they were even though Putin mm-hmm. to- even though Putin totally threw Gaddafi under the bus with resolution 1973 at the UN Security Council and the establishment of the no-fly zone where Russia completely betrayed Libya, but you know, to be fair, Russia had no interest in Libya, so what do they care? You know, uh, right. but but in 2011, RT really did provide critical coverage on on Libya, really debunked quite a lot of the lies of the Obama administration and of NATO uh, in general. Fast forward, and uh, you know, a few years, and RT has become one of the leading mouthpieces—not just RT, but Russian media in general—have become the leading mouthpieces of the support for for far right fascist politics in Europe, in addition to that, really muddying the waters on the Syria conflict. No, that's absolutely true. And it's not to say that there aren't good journalists that work for RT and good reports that come out. Sure. Uh, but I think it's really important, no matter what media outlet people are going to, to question it and to think about what perhaps is behind behind it, right? We, If we know what's behind it, we know what the agenda may be. And if we don't question that, then we're falling victim to it. And uh, it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. And as, as we've seen with, you know, some of these recent, uh, you know, like the French election, for example. Well, let's talk about that because I was, uh, I mean, <laughs> I was mercilessly attacked by many people for uh, suggesting that uh, Russia and Russian media was clearly and unmistakably backing every single far-right political formation in Europe, including in the United States with Donald Trump. And then we had this whole thing with Le Pen, right? And RT and the Russians were unabashedly supporting Le Pen, including up to, you know, providing direct financial support through Russian lending institutions for her campaign. So uh, I, I think that at this point in, in 2017, how could anybody be ignoring this? That's a very good question. I, I'm not sure. I think that um, it's, it's a similar narrative that played out during the last U.S. election as well. There were plenty of people on the left that were sympathetic to Trump. Um, I think that some actually supported Trump. Um, and I, among the same crowd that we, that we saw with Le Pen, for example, believed that Trump was going to somehow, you know, go in and change U.S. foreign policy, that he was going to be a protectionist and all of these things that, you know, in, in some ways he campaigned on. But if you looked just, just like you did, actually, who was behind his campaign, you knew that was a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And of course, now that's what we're seeing play out. Where are they now? Where are these people now? Obama never actually sent missiles into Syria, right? Of course, he was bombing Syria day in and day out. We still are. But he upped the game. He actually targeted a Syrian military outpost. Trump did this. The guy that was supposed to change the policy in Syria. You mean the, guy who, on, the guy who on the debate stage said 30,000 U.S. troops into Syria and Iraq, that that's what he wanted? I mean, right. it, it reminds me, it reminds me of Obama in 08, 
right? Standing on the stage, yeah. promising to expand the war in Afghanistan, expand the bombing, that he would drone Pakistan and drone Yemen and drone these places. And people are lauding him like a peace candidate, you know? And, and with Trump, it was, it's almost, it's even more egregious, you know? And people were talking about Trump as an isolationist. Trump is a watershed moment in American politics when everything changed. Give me a fucking break. There's still a lot of people on the Trump train that I'm very surprised about, and I'm curious, what is it going to take for them to jump off? Uh, how many more bombs house. does he have to drop? He'll have to come <laughs> to their houses and, and literally slit their throats. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I it, it blows me away, considering everything that's happening in the world and considering what Trump is. How could anybody who consider themselves even remotely on the left do anything but oppose this. Because the thing is, Josh, there was a time a, a number of months ago when people were making a calculated decision, right? They were saying, well, I know Trump is going to be disastrous in every way, but foreign policy is where it makes it all worth it because he's going to make a deal with the Russians. We're going to avoid a large-scale conflict. We're going to resolve what's happened in Syria, and things are going to be better internationally. They'll get worse for us in the U.S., but they'll get better uh, among the victims of imperialism. And Fast forward uh, six months later, and predictably, none of that has happened, and everything has gotten worse. Well, and that, that's that's a you know the analysis is always easy if you think one person is going to change the entire apparatus of U.S. foreign policy, for instance, or the entire uh, Wall Street stranglehold on our government, you know, just because they're elected into office. It's it's not as easy as you know they might claim it to be. Even Trump now, right, is admitting it's cheap. overhauling healthcare isn't an easy task. Duh, right? I mean, of course we know that it's not easy. And thanks, Donnie. Uh, thanks, Donnie. You know, for the for the obvious there. But it's uh, you know this is where we're at, and I think that a lot of people on the left um, that supported Trump or at least were sympathetic to Trump. <laughs> are, should now take a little look in the mirror uh, and see what we're left with. Um, and this thing, isn't to say that, you know, Hillary Clinton was great at all by any means, but um, she, I would argue, uh, in many cases would be acting quite a bit different than Trump. The funny thing is that I don't know anybody on the left who would ever say that they supported Trump, but I know plenty of people on the left who did nothing but find reasons to excuse what Trump was doing. And and so they won't, you know, overtly say, oh, I supported Trump, but they'll find a million reasons why he was better than Clinton. And that already shows such flawed logic in understanding how U.S. politics works and how the empire works. Right. I would I would agree with that. And I think it similarly played out with this election in France uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar fashion. Well, let's explain that because we're almost out of time and I want to touch on that real quick. So do you think that the that the situation in terms of the election in France was significantly different than what we had in the U.S.? And the reason I'm asking this question is because the the rationale behind, you know, the argument that. Well, Clinton, neither Clinton nor Trump, which was always my argument that I never would support either one of them, right? I'm wondering, I've seen some of that analysis when it comes to the French elections, and I'm wondering, in your opinion, does that analysis translate uh, correctly into the French 
context or were the circumstances different such that the decision between a Macron Le Pen abstention was a fundamentally different choice? I don't know if it was fundamentally different, but the context was different in that, uh, you know, the, the French voters were able to see what happened in the U.S. And I think what they saw happen in the U.S., they didn't want to see happen there. And I think many of them held their nose and voted against Le Pen uh, because she was straight up fascist. And yes, this was a victory for neoliberalism. It was a victory for the banks. Um, but it also was a defeat of a right wing fascist that needed to be defeated. And does that mean the left should have supported, uh, you know, Macron? I don't, I would never argue that. Um, but I think it played out the way it did largely because of what happened in the U.S. Oh, that's really interesting. You think that, you think that the, uh, one of the overriding factors was timing in all of this? I, it could have been. I mean, if this, if this election had taken place, uh, a year and a half ago, it may have turned out differently. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't think we know one way or the other with that, but, um, it's, it's hard to say, but that, that would be my take on, on the, reason why the election wasn't even nearly as close as people thought it was going to be. Do you think that there are people uh, working in the headquarters at RT who are in mourning and wearing all black? <laughs> Aren't they always wearing all black? <laughs> so I, 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 I mean, I'm picking on them because they're so blatantly in support of the far right uh, when it came to the French elections that it's really comical, uh, if not uh, sad. Well, I think what's really comical and what's really sad, maybe it's not so comical, it's more sad, is that in that those back rooms of these kind of places that do have this tendency to support right-wing fascists because they have this, you know, confused view of what they represent because they represent, you know, quote, populism or whatever they are arguing, it, that the left somehow is sympathetic to that and aligns themselves with that, that's where it gets very, very dangerous. Well, that's um, the that's, Red Brown. That's the Red Brown Alliance. That's the right. entryism. That's the, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, the Dugan and the Duganist movement, that's their centerpiece, right? It's a basically yeah. fourth political theory, Red Brown Alliance, you know, that, that type of crap. Um, but in the, in the brief time that we have remaining, I just want you to, uh, explain if you could a little bit about how counterpunch has approached uh, issues like the French election, because I think it's pretty instructive. Counterpunch is in many ways kind of unique when it comes to, uh, um, you know, media outlets in the uh, on the left. And I think that sometimes that uh, raises questions, raises eyebrows. And I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about that. So can you explain kind of how counterpunch has approached issues like the French election, like the U.S. election, like Syria, and a number of other highly controversial controversial subjects. Sure. I mean, I think Counterpunch's place is to provide a platform for discourse. And oftentimes Jeff and I publish things that we don't agree with. Um, but we think and believe that Counterpunch should be in a way uh, an open marketplace of ideas. And many of those ideas should be challenged, of course, and many of our writers challenge each other on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, I think we're not doing our job if people come to Counterpunch and they agree with everything that we publish. 
I certainly don't agree with everything that our writers are writing on every on a day in and day out basis, and many of them uh, like to bicker back and forth with one another. But that is, you know, I think a gift of Counterpunch is that you're going to come to Counterpunch day in and day out and find things that you agree with, things that you don't agree with. But in the end, hopefully, they make you think and they make you question. Um, and uh, I would hope that people understand that. You know, every day we get emails saying, "How could the heck could you publish this?" But even though they didn't realize the same, another article, that same edition is contradicting the other one and there's a back and forth debate going on there. Um, so I think people just need to come to Counterpunch with an open mind. And, and if we're not pissing you off, we're not doing our job, as Jeff likes to say. That's right. Uh, I, I would agree with that. And I, I have to admit that um, a number of times in recent weeks, I've opened up Counterpunch or, you know, brought up the website and I've and I've read an article and I'm just like, what? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> You know, but then I, but then the next day I read an article that 100, you know, it's 180 degrees opposite, totally attacks everything that was published in the previous article. And, uh, I'm like, yes, that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So for me personal, speaking for myself, I prefer that sort of thing rather than a publication that has, I guess what you might call a, 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 a set political line. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this is, I think it's important to, uh, look at, the entire breadth of what we publish as well. I mean, Jeff and I stand by our writers and we respect our writers and we don't always agree with them, but we have their back. And that means even when we disagree with what they're, what they're writing for us. Um, and that's part of being part of the counterpunch family is that if you're, if you're in, in the counterpunch family, you, you know, we don't always agree with one another, but we are still family and we are willing to hash it out. And I think that's an important, uh, an important thing and a, an important intellectual um, arena that is pretty special among the left. Yeah, and I think it's part of what makes Counterpunch really unique and why I, why I always encourage people to really get involved and to support Counterpunch because there really aren't very many spaces like it, if, if any, that I can think of. So uh, with that, uh, Josh Frank, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Managing Editor at Counterpunch. Uh, follow him on Facebook, on Twitter, attack him verbally, tell him how stupid he is and how everything he said is wrong, uh, and I will do the same. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, looking forward to that. Hey, thanks, Eric. Hey, guys, listen, thanks so much for supporting the show, for continuing to support it and uh, spreading the word about it. And I'll speak to you again next week. 